This episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal and Mongol people of the Eora Nation and the Darug people of the Dark Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. Hello and welcome to Trope Watchers, the show about pop culture and why it matters. I'm Mia. And I'm Scott, and we're culture scholars who sometimes lead secret underground lives. We are joined today by special guest Shams Bin Carter. Shams is a doctoral candidate in the Gender and Cultural Studies Department at the University of Sydney. Shams, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your research? Sure. Um, First of all, hi Mia, hi Scott, and uh, hi everyone. Uh, my research revolves around uh, investigating the politics of independence experienced by local independent musicians of um, inner city and inner west Sydney and how they negotiate their role within such intersecting issues such as live music, urban cultures, nighttime economies, creative labor, um, local state government policies, and mediation, especially um, via the new technologies. Um, my research interests include um, scenes, subcultures, youth culture, popular culture, and mediation of these through social media. So Shams, you've mentioned a few terms in your research interests that often seem to be interchanged. Uh, what is the difference between scene and a subculture? Oh, that's a really good question, Mia. So um, in my own words, scenes are a community of like-minded people usually from a particular place, coming together and being engaged in social activities based on their interest in a particular cultural topic. The concept of scene has long been used by musicians and music journalists um, to describe the clusters of musicians, promoters and fans, etc., who grow up around particular genres of music. Typically, this everyday usage of scene has referred to a particular local city, usually a city or district where a particular style of music has either originated or has uh, been appropriated or locally adapted. Um, Significance of scene theory has come up partly due to its criticism and rejection of subcultures, um, especially regarding tropes of music styles and youth cultures. In contrast to uh, subcultures, scene constitutes a far broader and more dynamic series of social relationships and its memberships are not necessarily restricted to class, gender or ethnicity, but may cut across all of these. Similarly, scene ethos and practices include um, connotations of style and fashion, which are less concrete and restrictive, like those associated with subcultures. Um, Both these theoretical frameworks are useful to understand the different organizing functions of youth and popular cultures. Okay, so Scott, does this academic understanding of scenes differ from how you've understood the term in the past? Yeah, so it depends on how rigidly we are sticking with the scene and its relationship to physical space. Um, So it does seem like, particularly based on the articles that you, Shams, linked to me before this episode, that this is an important dimension to this, though I suspect it's probably got something to do with its intersection with studies of urban cultures. So one of the authors you linked, Will Straw, um, suggested a few things in which scenes might be, which... Some of the definitions include, uh, quote, collectivities marked by some form of proximity or spaces of assembly uh, pulling together the varieties of cultural phenomena, end quote. 
and so forth. And again, in Karen Drysdale's article, quote, scenes operate as highly localized and spatialized forms of sociality at the same time as they give unity and meaning to globalized uh, practices, end quote. So obviously, scenes do not begin and end with the walls of their venues. There is uh, a degree of flexibility and fluidity in its supposed boundedness. Uh, that said, these definitions do appear to stress some central space or spaces uh, in which social consumption or engagement with a cultural form occurs. But then I do wonder, I mean, much like what Straw claims is one of the earliest questions asked of the concept of scene, which is, can it be imagined outside of a relationship with physical proximity? And this prompts me to think of things like online communities, communication and digital technologies, you know, so like uh, forum boards or messaging boards, social media, servers hosting video games or live streaming of events, so forth. Um, uh, might these stand in for that traditional reliance on physical proximity or physical sites of assembly? Um, does this extend the application of scene or am I kind of straying into terrain more appropriately covered by another term here? Well, Scott, um, you have really articulated those um, points quite nicely. It's just that, um, first of all, to answer your question, uh, scene is actually an appropriate term for all the things you mentioned above. And that is one of the biggest strengths of uh, scene theory or uh, the scene perspective, as uh, Straw would call it, is its flexibility. And um, because it can be applied to so many different situations. And um, specifically what you were talking about, about the local physical space, um, it could go beyond that. So we, um, there, uh, there's this other uh, set of uh, authors, um, Bennett and Peterson. They have this whole book about, um, uh, about different types of scenes, which include local scenes, translocal scenes, and virtual scenes. So a lot of what you talked about about um, the new technologies, the new um, communication technologies, social media, um, that all of that um, does fall under virtual scenes, which has no um, physical link to physical spaces at all, but it's all in a virtual space. And translocal, which is kind of a combination, a bit of uh, exchange, communication between uh, different areas, uh, different physical spaces where scenes uh, uh, occupy these kind of areas, but a, a, a communication between the members of these um, separate local scenes, forming a translocal scene, something like that. So for today's episode, we're going to focus on two case studies, the Dhaka underground music scene and the Central Sydney independent music scene, which are two focuses of Shams's research. Uh, obviously, no spoiler warnings for this episode. So Shams, to begin, tell us a little bit more about your research into Dhaka's metal underground. Sure. Um, so uh, I should really frame it like this. Um, the research I did uh, about this um, Taka underground or um, uh, Taka alternative music scene, um, it uh, stems from my MPhil research work that I did at the University of Sydney. Um, and um, this Taka underground uh, portrays characteristics associated with subcultural scenes, including elements such as aesthetic and philosophical distinction from the national mainstream music industry, social rebellion through symbolic expressions of resistance against the poor situation of the country, as well as appropriation and reproduction of international codes of music, uh, metal, uh, metal music, as an impetus for the uh, for establishing translocal connections with similar geographically removed alternative music scenes around the world, seeking recognition of their talent and skill. 
Um, so, uh, this Dhaka Underground is located in the socio-historic milieu of Dhaka City, um, capital of the post-colonial developing country of Bangladesh, where I'm actually originally from. Um, this alternative music scene is locally dubbed the Dhaka Underground. It originated in the early 1990s in Dhaka and soared in popularity roughly in between the 2000s till 2010, um, before slowly dying down, though it still exists today, but in a more um, low-key form. Um, it is mobilized, this Dhaka underground scene is mobilized by the activities of largely middle-class to upper-class male youth who share uh, particular economic and cultural social resources that afford their participation in this non-commercial and non-professional music scene based on international genres of metal, as well as other foreign alternative music genres. And you were once part of this scene, weren't you? Um, yes, I was. In between um, about 2001 till 2011, so almost a decade, <laughs> I was associated with multiple bands uh, within this scene. Very cool. Okay. And how did you find crossing the divide uh, from being a member of the scene to writing academically about it? Well, I wanted to pursue a career in academic research or teaching. And um, to do that, I had to, uh, you know, do higher studies. I had to do uh, a MPhil and PhD, something like that. But um, I knew in my heart I had to focus on a topic which uh, really interested me, something that would continue to keep me interested as I unpacked and analyzed different um, related tropes within this um, discourse. And um, that is why I chose this area of study involving alternative music scenes, both for my MPhil and my PhD research. Now. If given the choice, I would still be a part of the um, Dhaka Underground rather than writing academically about it. But unfortunately, um, I could not carve out a career out of that. So um, <laughs> I, I have to do the next best thing, which is um, being an academic and researching about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, alas, a few of us can carve a career out of those kind of things alone. Uh, and Scott, Sham sent you... Uh, a selection of clips featuring bands from the Dhaka uh, Metal Underground. How did what you saw and heard match your understandings of metal and or deviate from it? Okay, so confession, I am a former metalhead, less so (laughs) now, but I certainly can still enjoy the music. Um, I was mainly into stuff like Metallica and Iron Man, and so like the the big bands. Um, And some really obscure subgenres as well, but we're not going to go into that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so Sham's passed on two bands, uh, supposed to be representative of the darker underground scene, um, Power Surge and Mechanics. And I I mean, I am significantly less adept at unpacking music in great depth compared to other culture forms like television and whatnot. But I can say that these bands certainly were recognizably metal in both sound and look. (laughs) (laughs) They were, and they were good. I like them a lot. Um, They're very clearly influenced by bands like Metallica, uh, which is an impression that I got. It was helped by the fact that Power Surge had a whole bunch of covers of old school Metallica uploaded on YouTube as well like Battery and Master of Puppets, uh, which are really good covers too. I really like them. Um, the band members were typically clad in all black attire, some with spiked wristbands, others with band shirts, referencing notable uh, bands within that genre, as well as other Bangladeshi bands. Um, Power Surge's vocalist seems to play his trade in a very Hetfield style, and there's lots of solos, heavy bridges, and long hair being whipped around while headbanging. So it's all very familiar to me and my understanding of the metal uh, genre. 
Um, the music videos had a lot of apocalyptic imagery. Um, so the standard derelict houses that bands seem to find themselves in when they're being videoed for these kind of uh, um, clips. Uh, rains of fire, mystic imagery, all that stuff. Um, I can't really comment on the lyrical content, but yeah, I mean, overall, if these are accurate stand-ins for the wider scene charms, then it syncs up nicely with my expectations of the metal genre broadly. And this points to how local scenes can still be permeated by global cultural flows and phenomena. Um, what I did appreciate about these scenes and your research, Shams, uh, is how it undercuts these, those nonsense orientalist fantasies about these places which no doubt would expect any and all music scenes to be some sort of indecipherable sitar tune or whatever. Um, especially in these assumed conservative Islamic contexts, um, the ignorant expectation would be that such scenes just simply would not exist. But they do. And um, evidently, not just in Dhaka. You also linked an all-woman um, Indonesian metal band called VOB, who did a compelling job at covering, covering a slipknot of all things. <laughs> And they were great too. And beyond just the mere novelty of seeing three young women in hijabs performing psychosocial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in terms of my history with metal, uh, we can say I dabbled in metal in my teens. Uh, so in addition to classics like Metallica, I was really into uh, visual care power metal for <laughs> a really short period of time. Uh, but overall, I know very little about the metal scenes in general and obviously even less about the darker scenes. So this is all absolutely new to me. Um, so Shams, are there common codes of metal that carry across into the darker scene? And what are these specific codes? Um, yeah, so um, as um, Scott actually, when he was analyzing uh, some of the um, work of uh, Dhaka underground bands like uh, Power Surge and Mechanics, uh, he really... Um, just summarized uh, some of the really um, important um, metal codes that are uh, visible there. And um, I believe that um, th uh, th this is something you, both of you can probably relate to as well, is that um, the discourse of metal music does uh, have some unique codes, and it is uh, really interesting to see how these are reproduced, reappropriated, um, if you would, in different parts of the world. Um, so, uh, first of all, I would like to say, like, you know, you might ask why, why these specific codes are reappropriated or reproduced. Um, it's difficult to say, but I believe that from my research ex experience, I've gathered that um, the inherent uh, rebellious nature of metal and its um, uncompromising loudness and aggression resonates globally with uh, disenfranchised youth, regardless of the issues that um, they're facing. And um, when uh, talking about, you asked specifically about what kind of um, codes, uh, kind of metal codes, uh, kind of go into the, um, uh, talk, uh, come across into the Dhaka scene. Well, um, obviously, like uh, Scott was saying, um, even though there is um, symbol, uh, symbolic resistance or symbolic expressions of resistance um, through their lyrics, performances, uh, fashion choices, music arrangements, and uh, visuals constituting of metal codes such as Christian violence, um, gore, satanic symbolisms, uh, distorted guitars, loud drums, head-banging, mosh pits, uh, black outfits, black boots, etc., etc. And um, also, I should also mention that it is um, a lot of that um, kind of is, is a response to the socio-historic uh, environment of, of Dhaka City and of Bangladesh as a whole. 
And um, basically, it should be mentioned that since its independence, Bangladesh has experienced a regular political unrest due to frequent changes of government, widespread corruption, um, social injustice, poor safety and security conditions, inflation, lack of uh, infrastructural development, um, mass strikes, um, large-scale uh, flooding and cyclones, um, which often take place. And um, the local youth of uh, the Dhaka underground, especially in the beginning, they expressed their um, sentiments toward the um, local situation, so toward the uh, poor situation of the country, um, with the kind of resources available to them, which um, include these um, international genres of metal and international codes of metal that come in with this music. Um, the Dhaka youth were looking for an outlet in the form of uh, a liberal and creative space to express their feelings and um, playing comparatively new genres, uh, heavy metal and hard rock, new in the, um, in, in the environment of Bangladesh at that time, and playing this kind of, ga uh, playing this kind of music in small gigs full of like-minded youth uh, provided them with this um, outlet to kind of act out um, against the poor situation of the country. So for your PhD research, you've moved into Australian, uh, the Australian independent music scene. What is the history of this scene? Right. Now, um, I should first of all mention that um, my focus is not the whole um, Australian independent music scene. Specifically, I'm investigating the um, inner city, inner west um, suburbs um, like uh, Marrickville, Newtown, Leichhardt, Glebe, Annandale, Petersham, Redfern, Tempe, Waterloo, Alexandria, etc., etc. So the inner city, inner west area. Um, and the kind of independent music scene um, that is there, um, just focusing on this area uh, for my PhD study. And um, you asked about the history. So when I talk about the history of um, this um, Sydney, Central Sydney independent music scene, it, it is at this point that it, this history also kind of, um, it, 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 it kind of stems into the whole Australian independent music scene because... Um, when we're talking about the history, I should mention that the Australian um, and um, kind of informing the Sydney independent music scene as well, it came into existence uh, from the punk history of Australia. So some of its practices and ethos um, are still reminiscent in its contemporary form, um, although it's in uh, its reappropriated um, uh, it's in reappropriated forms, and as a response to the recent uh, digital music environment. Um, Clinton Walker, a prominent uh, music journalist and academic, um, states that the local punk movement, um, the Australian punk movement, originated from a sense of resistance and rebellion um, uh, from the commercially popular and incre increasingly corporatized, um, corporatized um, pub rock or Oz rock culture uh, in the mid-70s and early 1980s in Australia. So what he's talking about is the um, original punk movement of Australia, it came up as a response to the uh, very commercial, um, not, I, should, I should not say very commercial, it wasn't commercial in the beginning, but the um, very traditional pub rock or uh, rock culture of Australia, which became commercial and quite um, got a lot of international recognition and success, commercial success, uh, uh, during the late 1970s and early 80s. Other scholars in the field, such as um, John Stratton and Shane Homan, agree that the Australian popular music from the mid-1970s can be categorized under three strands, uh, which includes pop rock, oz rock, and alternative or punk rock. Now, the pop rock developed mainly due to the ABC's um, popular music countdown program, Countdown, uh, which was uh, with artists such as Hush, Sherbert, and Pseudo Echo. 
while Oz Rock originated from the suburban pop circuit with artists such as um, Cole Chisel, The Angels, Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. Um, Stratton terms the third strand alternative rock, encompassing the local punk scene with the likes of um, The Saints, Radio Birdman, who arguably foreshadowed their, um, foreshadowed their English counterparts in the legacy of punk, but that's a different discussion altogether. Um, Matheson, another um, music journalist come author, uh, describes uh, Australian independent music uh, as a residue of the 1977 punk rock explosion, which was uh, disparaged as having little or no commercial possibilities by the multinational record companies um, in Australia um, that viewed Australia as just one of their markets where the local radio stations wouldn't play their uh, vinyl releases and only a handful of record stores would actually have their music. And therefore the outcome was a birth of a do-it-yourself DIY economy subsidizing a hand-to-mouth existence, talking about um, the original punks movement of Australia, which kind of at one point gave birth to the Australian independent music scene. Yes, this is much more of my comfort area. I was very much raised on uh, Aussie punk music, like, you know, the scientists and celibate rifles and those kind of things. We see, um, particularly in kind of punk and independent music scenes, this notion of rebelling against corporatized or mainstream music. Scott, what are your thoughts on this as a trope of independent and punk music? So the thing that interests me is the policing of boundaries between things like punk and popular or between indie and mainstream and how these kind of manifest in visual aesthetic and musical style variation. And then you have, you reach this accompanying trope of the sellout whereby a figure or a band or what have you explodes in popularity, is signed onto a major record deal and transcends the original scene's scope. Um, but when I think of some bands like Nirvana and Green Day, um, these these bands kind of maintained most of those aesthetics um, that originally set them out as punk or rebellious or alternative and so forth. Um, and these probably have some sort of flow on effects on shifting what is stereotypically understood as pop, appropriating some of these characteristics. So I look at Green Day, for example, and I see punk. But I also cannot not see them as pop in some ways. They they are or were still punk rock during their peak, which I mean, in, in my eyes was the noughties. Uh, when I was a teenager, American Idiot hit and they were like the biggest band in the world at the time. Um, but it certainly permeated mainstream music at the time. Um, and in some circles, I guess they are called pop punk, but that kind of seems like an oxymoron to me, uh, particularly in the way we're sort of etching out an understanding of punk here so at what point at what point do designations like punk or alternative cease to be useful have they reached that point already and what happens then to these scenes that originally traded in these visuals or sounds as a means of rebellion or alternative have they splintered into various subgenres of course I am speaking here at a very very generalized and not expert level so maybe green they did stop being punk rock pre-American Idiot. Please don't send your hate mail to me. <laughs> Look, it's possible, but if you ask Billy Joe Armstrong, he would say he is not pop punk because he wants pop punk to die and he hates the term. <laughs> so, uh, but this does raise an interesting point. So, Shams, have you encountered any such policing of scene boundaries in your research thus far, uh, either in Dhaka or Sydney? What counts as kind of belonging 
and what's cut out of it. Um, yeah, so um, in both the scenes, there are certain cultural intermediaries, uh, borrowing from Bojo, uh, who regulate and maintain um, these um, scene spaces. But these activities um, are usually a response to the local context or born out of necessity, rather than a heavy-handed policing of boundaries. Um, I just want, I want to talk more about the um, Central, Sydney Independent, uh, Central Sydney Independent Music Scene here as an example. Um, so who are the cultural intermediaries, if you would, in this um, uh, aspect? So uh, it includes uh, venue managers, booking agents, record label owners, um, radio, print, or online journalists, uh, bloggers. Um, so what do they do? They judge new um, bands, artists, according to their talent and levels of social engagement. Now, this is something uh, from my uh, research findings. Um, socializing at gigs and voluntary labor at events are very much appreciated as well as obviously um, their talent. Now, um, their talent can be linked with what Scott was uh, talking about, about authenticity, about maybe this um, uh, uh, ethos of not selling out. Um, but in this um, Central Sydney independent music scene, I believe that everyone eventually actually gets a chance. Um, if, they, if, they have, if they sound good, then this is coming from my findings again, and that's what the musicians share with me. If they sound good, meaning that if, if they have... Um, some sort of talent if they're good enough to be on stage or to make a recording. And if they're persistent, by persistent I mean if they're really at it, coming to gigs, socializing, lending their, lending their labor in terms of voluntary work and just being there to say that, you know, just keep at it and then there are so many opportunities for new artists over here in the Central Sydney scene. So I guess I would say that this kind of um, policing is just a matter of uh, maintaining um, the scene uh, rather than really um, putting on restrictions or uh, adhering to any kinds of um, ethos or practices or um, beliefs. It's more a practical thing about um, managing and maintaining the scene. And how might size or scale factor into an understanding of scenes? Well, it depends, really. Um, in terms of um, academic investigations, uh, it depends on the size of the sample, strategies of, of inquiry, depth of the questions, um, if I understood your question properly. Um, for example, um, the centrals, uh, for the Central Sydney independent music scene that I'm investigating uh, for my PhD, um, I, I took a kind of a, a relatively small sample size of about 15 um, musicians or uh, 15 people involved with this scene and uh, I'm interviewing them, but it, it's still deemed appropriate for uh, this, uh, for my thesis, only because um, the strategy of inquiry is face-to-face, um, -face, uh, in-depth, um, uh, semi-structured uh, interviews with um, semi-structured questions, and uh, the kind of the level of depth that um, I'm trying to reach, um, it kind of, it, it's kind of sufficient to kind of understand um, the workings of this scene, uh, even though I'm talking with um, 15 people as compared to, let's say, 30 or 50 uh, people at the scene. Mm, and what have your findings been so far? Um, that's really interesting. <laughs> um, it, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's still, a, it's a work in progress, I should say, but some of the findings I do want to share with you guys uh, today. So um, the um, contemporary um, independent music scene um, that I'm studying is, is a local scene influenced by its local cultural, political, socio-economic, and socio-historical milieu. 
even though government policies, um, urban gentrification, and a host of other factors affect scene members directly, as it leads to less live music gigs and closing down of um, many venues, um, they're generally engaged with negotiating with changes rather than aggressively resisting them. The scene is generally inclusive of all genders and um, LGBTIQ friendly, even though males hold a slight majority. Scene mem members uh, value authenticity, creative and aesthetic freedom in favor of commercial success. Um, this uh, non-commercial focus means that there are certain affordances, um, which include cultural, economic, and social capital, again borrowing from Bourdieu, uh, which allow participation in this semi-professional cultural phenomena. And majority of SIN members can be categorized under uh, middle class, many of whom uh, possess um, tertiary um, and or uh, music education. Um, SIN members generally have full-time jobs within or outside the music and entertainment industries. They're involved with careers such as music teachers, session players, lecturers, television producers, creative directors, and public servants. The scene is regulated by um, certain cultural intermediaries, as I mentioned. Um, again, who are involved towards providing agency to the scene and help in terms of mobilization, um, as opposed to heavy-handed policing of boundaries. Um, social networks, online and off, are important uh, for scene mobilization. Musicians and enthusiasts become scene members by attending, socializing, and sharing their music at live gigs and events. Um, given the economics of scale at work within this Sydney independent music scene, um, live music performances are the most important aspect of the scene in terms of gaining recognition as well as financial rewards. So, um, kind of, I would say that this is kind of a summary of my findings so far, but like I said, it is a work in progress. So, yeah. Yeah, so you, you mentioned these kind of uh, social networks, and Scott was talking a little bit earlier about digital technologies. Uh, how do these technologies factor into contemporary scenes? This is um, what, I, what I'll be talking about now. This is actually um, something, uh, a very significant finding of my uh, research, I believe, and uh, something I would term as digital DIY. Okay, now I'll, of course, unpack that, so let me get right into it. So independent music scenes exist in relation to the popular and uh, mainstream music industry. So major record labels often subsidize smaller independent labels, shares their distribution with them, and often um, outright owns them. So this, this is just um, from the, um, in the global north, this is how uh, music industries work. Uh, multiple scholars also recognize independent music scenes as breeding grounds or incubators for the majors, um, major record labels, signing up new talents when they are deemed ready for their big break. Um, the contemporary popular music industry has changed a lot as well, as uh, Scott mentioned about technologies. Um, with the advent of digital music, copyright laws have been revised and articulated. Other innovations to the industry include online markets like iTunes and Google Music, streaming services like uh, Spotify, Pandora, Lost.fm, um, online radio apps like iHeartRadio, um, social media platforms such as Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, um, Bandcamp and SoundCloud as well, and not to mention song artist recommendation algorithms in accordance with the listener activities and choices, um, within the discourse of this digital music industry, creative amateur musicians are celebrated and listeners have become genre omnivorous, uh, blurring the boundaries between genres, which, is, um, which was one of the main 
organizing mechanisms of the old school recording industry. So that's how I frame it. Um, this contemporary digital popular music industry influences the central Sydney independent music scene as well. Um, my research reveals that local independent musicians utilize online media and digital music technology to control almost every aspect of their music career, often replacing some of the traditional functions of recording studios, booking agents, record labels, and stores. I refer to this practice uh, of independent musicians as the digital DIY, as I was mentioning. Um, now, the practice of DIY, uh, which originated within the punk discourses of the US and UK and Australia, um, usually involved but are not limited to recording live albums or cheap recordings into vinyls, cassettes, or CDs, organizing live gigs at illegal or unsolicited um, venues such as garages, basements, and uh, warehouses, uh, creating posters and fanzines um, themselves, um, and distributing their music via live gigs, mail orders, websites, and fan communities. Um, so musicians from the Central Sydney, uh, Sydney independent music scene record their music on their laptops using home studio technologies, use Facebook and email lists to promote their music and live shows, distribute their music via Bandcamp, share their music videos on YouTube, design and print their own posters and artwork, and even order CDs and vinyls to be pressed from uh, third-party companies uh, over the internet. Um, they choose whether their profile and music should be featured um, in radio stations like 2RRR, FBI, or Triple J, and uh, in music press such as The Music or The Brag, um, or in any other media outlets, uh, simply by containing, uh, contacting and sharing their music with appropriate contact persons from these institutions. Um, Bandcamp is the preferred platform by majority of the participants of my study, um, because um, proceeds from selling music uh, in Bandcamp largely go back to the artists themselves. Um, online social media also allows independent musicians to be in direct touch with their fans and colleagues. Uh, even if some bands are signed with independent labels, they often still manage bookings and tours themselves, with their label only looking after distribution and marketing of their music. Contemporary Sydney independent musicians prefer to be in personal contact with gig organizers and venue managers instead of communicating uh, through traditional band management representation. In summary, I refer to these above practices of uh, Central Sydney independent music musicians, uh, Sydney independent musicians, as digital DIY because it seems appropriate since uh, this independent music scene uh, originated from the uh, Australian punk movements of the nineteen seventies, and these um, scene members are essentially using um, online social media and digital music technologies to do much of what their punk predecessors used to do, um, although in a more um, offline environment. Furthermore, the control afforded by these online technologies to manage almost every aspect of their music is what uh, scene members associate with the meaning of independence in this contemporary digital age of music. So it goes back to one of the main findings or one of the main focuses of my thesis, which is what is the politics of independence in this um, digital environment of music today? Um, so what is, this, uh, what is the meaning of independence to these um, Central Sydney independent musicians in this environment? And um, from my findings, I found that um, this digital DIY or the control afforded by online technologies to manage almost every aspect of their music is what they refer to as independence. Mm -hmm.
Okay, so that's it for today's episode. And as a special treat, instead of our normal outro music, we're actually going to treat you to uh, Shams's old band, Bohemian. So this song is called Megalodin. There will be a link to the video on our website. So Shams, thank you so much for sharing your research and insights with us today. As someone who is very, very out of the loop when it comes to contemporary music scenes, I feel like I've learned a lot. <laughs> no, thank you. And thanks uh, to Scott. And thank you for inviting me. Um, I, just, uh, I just think that it's a brilliant opportunity for me to um, share uh, what I'm doing um, with the uh, rest of the world. And I think um, this is a very interesting um, podcast as well. So thank you. Mm, thank you. Uh, you can find Shams's research work at ResearchGate and Academia. You can also follow him on Twitter. All links will be in the bio. If you're a fan of Trope Watchers, check out our sister podcast, A Clash of Critics, your scholarly podcast about Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find our podcast. You can find this episode and all future episodes on iTunes and Stitcher. Also, check out our website, www.tropewatches.com, for all episodes, extra content, or to download the RSS feed. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash tropewatches. You can tweet at us or follow us on Instagram at tropewatches. You can also email us at tropewatches at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Scott. And I'm Mia, and we are your tropewatches. Watchers.